Outlaws and Scorned Women is intended for entertainment purposes only. Nothing on this show should ever be construed as actual legal advice. Also, it is chock full of adult content, so we do recommend a little bit of listener discretion. There are people being grabbed off the street by ununiformed uh, men with unmarked vans and whisked away to another location and we assume hopefully are being released later. You have a you have a gremlin behind you. <laughs> Good night, son. <laughs> He's been like e e e e across the screen behind you so for like the last two minutes <laughs> i work here and legitimately both of my children and since i'm wearing the headphones like my spidey sense is apparently dulled yeah like they test it and i'll be working and i will feel them in the room and i have to turn around and they're like oh oh i got closer this time like you need a mirror set up a mirror yeah. that's what i had to do when i was back in cubicle life when I worked in an office, set up a mirror next to your computer monitor, then you see whoever's creeping behind you. Hey, that's right. Because that's how I would catch my boss, like, coming to see what was on my computer screen. Creeper, no creeping. To make sure I was working. That's yeah, right. get a mirror. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm a gonna. But yeah, no, people are being snatched off the street. So the, yeah, the the federal police. Okay, first off, secret yeah. police. Secret police um, who don't tell you or identify themselves when they are whisking you away in rental like, cars. Like that could be that could be fucking anybody. Yeah, that's so yeah. un-American. That is not um consistent with our ideals. A federal police coming into state and local, you know, um god, territories and enforcing what are really local policing mm-hmm. problems is just so problematic. It is so Especially in- when the governor of that state has asked you to leave. I mean. And then you say no. I am I am so just, I want to say that I'm like completely shocked out of my boots. No. Nope. But we're in, what? We're in wacky earth timeline. Yeah. We're in this like crazy alt earth mm-hmm. where, where norms and standards are just turned topsy-turvy. Like I never would have thought we'd have. You know, that the the COVID situation would be what it is today because I completely had faith that we have structures in place and we would no, we've we've eradicated all of our our nets and and cushions through our all of our supplies and our safety nets really quick. And like I had faith, silly, silly, idyllic, starry eyed faith in my fellow citizens. (laughs) I mean, the same Um, people that are angry about your mask. Are okay uh-huh. if you know if that incursion happens in a liberal town. I guess I don't. Yeah, what? because it's happening to those people over there. Uh, um, because it's happening to people to liberals. I mean, like that's how that's how, that's how it's being the lines have gotten. That's how it's being framed, yeah. and that's how tribal our politics have become. How polarized we are. I mean, right? It's and it's that's really terrifying. It yeah. is not us against them. We are all the United States. It's really uncomfortable. Like, and why has it got to be this way? We're gonna die. <laughs> oh, no, I mean that. Yeah. Vote, vote, 
voting is so important because a lot of the oh decisions, a lot of these policies are are matters of, you know, um, that, that we have some say in, you know, mm-hmm. if, if you want to say that voting establishes the political will and the political desire for things, then mm-hmm. your vote matters in changing the tone and tenor of these these actions on the state level, on the federal level, and it is so desperately important. I was thinking about that with our story tonight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember, everybody, uh-huh. you vote for your DA. Yeah. The district attorney is a position that you have some say in, so we mm-hmm. should be more aware of the policies driving. Do you vote for the state attorney general as well? I can't recall. I believe you do. Yes. Yes. I don't know. Google that shit. Vote for Texas attorney. Oh, yeah. Yeah. General uh- election. So there are so many um you vote you vote for your DA. And Texas you vote for votes for a lot of judges. Yes, you vote for your sheriff. Yeah. You vote for your sheriff, you vote for your DA, you vote for the AG, you vote for your judges. Yeah, you vote for every authority figure in this story yeah. that um, you know, made some choices. Yes, all the way shall in, we say. In this case, all the way up to the the members of the Court of Criminal Appeals. Oh, you wow, vote for really? them. Yes. Holy shit. So, I mean, because so. not all states elect their judges, but Texas mm-hmm. elects their judges. And cool. so, yes, we need to, you need to know who your people are. You need mm-hmm. to know the the politics um, and the, the driving decisions of the, you know, of the counties you're mm-hmm. in, of the state you're in. Um, we should probably record a podcast. That's what we're here to do. <laughs> I have heard this, this story. Oh, good Lord. Okay. So, um, here we go. Here we go. Let me find my show voice. Hello. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Outlaws and Scorned Women, the podcast that explores the criminal history of the great state of Texas. My name is Stephanie, and I'm watching my co-host bob her head along with my words on a screen, which makes me feel both seen and attacked. <laughs> and you are <laughs> I'm Stephanie. I am apparently all seeing and attacking. Um, I am the friendly voice of, you know, legal reasoning at times, yes. mom, quarantiner. <laughs> I'm not I mean isolator, um co- mm-hmm. nope, social I, distancer. Social distancer, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. um waiting for my uh mom of the year plaque as i watch 80 mo- 80s movies with the kids on the regular <laughs> while i work from home and that right. went way longer than i want and hopefully you can chop it up later i mean maybe or maybe i will just let you ramble <laughs> i mean i feel like we all have time oh. and and it would be nice to hear the voices of adults that we are not uh confined with oh. so Tune in, everybody, and listen to the dulcet sounds of us talking to each other. Uh, anyway, so this, um, I didn't even know about this until you told me yeah. about it. I i had no idea. I had never heard of the city of Tulia. Uh, so when you sent it to me, it's spelled, it's the town, the name, the city of Tulia. It is spelled T-U-L-I-A, right? Mm-hmm. So my what what was, when you read it, what was your first thought of how to pronounce that? So I was thinking it was um, Tulia 
And then when I heard, mm-hmm. or or Tulia. And yeah, then, I thought Tulia. And then um, when I heard it in various like documentaries, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, everybody says Tulia. Right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I thought Tulia. And I think that's just because the Texas accent um, reserves the right to add or subtract syllables or emphasis uh, as we see fit. Um, so it could be any way. So T-U-L-I-A, logically, you're going to pronounce all of those letters. There's nothing weird about it. It's Tulia. But if you live in this tiny town in the panhandle of Texas, uh, you pronounce it tool like a hammer is a tool. Yeah. Tulia. Tulia. That's right. Tulia. It's a two-syllable word, Tulia. So, yeah, this story uh, blew my mind at just the sheer audacity, dare I say, the caucasity of the situation. Oh, I see what you did there. Oh, oh, wow. Just a modern miscarriage of justice. So large and scale. So outrageous. It's crazy. I mean, this was like the, the Costco of... Uh, the Costco shopping trip of miscarriages of justice. Like let's, Mm -hmm. let's get an eternity supply of these wrongs and lives that we can ruin. It's amazing. Let's get into it. Buckle up buttercups. Wait, hold on. Is it buckle up buttercups? Let's get into it. I haven't done this in a while. Uh, I do think that we should start um, at the top of the story, uh, just to clarify the official position of outlaws and scorned women, uh, that we are not Mm -hmm. anti-cop. We are not. um, Okay, we are not anti-cop. We are anti-violent, lying, racist cop. Okay, so we're not anti-law enforcement. We are not. We are definitely pro-rule of law because the rule of law exists for the protection of all. And we do believe in safety and orderly society and law-abiding citizens, you know, having their days in court. We do not, however, stand for the injustices as those described in some of our stories. Oh, my God. You're so much better at saying that than I am. (laughs) (laughs) We get all hot and bothered at the malfeasance and the miscarriage of justice. And can I say this story is so perfectly timed because I'm so I'm so mad at the world. (laughs) right now and this was just really good this was really good to just have something to exercise my outrage on okay so our story takes place in the late 1990s in the city of tulia texas now tulia texas has been around in some form or another since about the 1880s uh it is the county seat of swisher county and it's up in the panhandle um and by panhandle for those of you I don't know how many of you there could possibly be, but for those of you who are not from Texas, um, if you look at a map of Texas, it's all squiggly lines and weird shapes all around the edges until you get to the very top where it's perfectly squared off and it's sort of sticking up off the map like the handle of a pan. Hence, that's the panhandle. That was probably a really condescending way to explain um, that Tulia exists in a very northern piece of the state. It's so far north, it might as well be Oklahoma. And I say that with love in my heart. I'm sorry, Tulia, you're real far away. Uh, Tulia is closer to the capital of Oklahoma than it is to the capital of Texas. It's only about a four and a half hour drive from from Tulia to Oklahoma City. It is a seven hour drive from Tulia to Austin. So I'm just saying. Anyway, the panhandle of Texas, it is right where the Great Plains of America starts. So Tulia is sitting in the middle of a whole flat lot of nothing. 
broken up by the occasional surprise canyon, you know, for your for your cows to fall into. Because that's what this is. This is a big, wide open spaces type of land that, like so much of Texas, is really good for herding cattle. So the primary industry in Tulia is, was, and ever shall be cows. Uh, feeding them, moving them, selling them, doing whatever it is you do with cows, uh, killing them and eating them? I don't know. I don't... Eventually, I mean, that does seem to be the logical... Anyway. Um, if you were down on your luck in Tulia, you couldn't get a job anywhere else. You could always get a job baling hay or shoveling shit at the sale yard, which was this big, sprawling cattle auction that was the beating heart, was and is now the beating heart of Tulia. In 1999, which is where our story sort of crescendos, uh... Tulia had a population of about 5,000 people. This is very mm -hmm. small. The city of Tulia covers, I looked this up, three and a half square miles. Okay. Yeah. Like, that's it. So, uh... It's teensy. A lot of nothing surrounding yeah. this little town. Like, and I gotta say, think that half of that three and a half square miles is is a cow auction. Right. Like, should, they don't even have a Dairy Queen. No McDonald's, no Costco. Nothing. Yeah. They, there's like, <laughs> no Costco. There's no gas. There's like a gas station. And that's it. Like this is, this is a very small town. And it's the county seat, which tells you a thing or two about how Hoppin Swisher County must be. Hoppin. <laughs> <laughs> it's very busy. It's very cosmopolitan. Um, so in 1999, uh, this county seat, it was the center of operations for Sheriff Larry Stewart and District Attorney Terry McEachern. And those two gentlemen had just come into some pretty juicy federal funding. See, this is 1999, so the war on drugs is raging. This is pre-9-11. We haven't shifted our focus over to the war on terror yet. We're still warring on the concept of drugs. Which, umbrella I mean, term, drugs. And, and, you know, not not for nothing, we're still kind of dealing with the whole landscape of the war on drugs in law mm -hmm. enforcement yeah. and yeah well because all of that scaffolding was put in place and a lot of the funding and attention of law enforcement may have turned away from the war on drugs towards the war on terror like the entire second season of the wire all of that that whole narrative right there <laughs> have you been have you been watching so the wire? i totally got through it? season two <laughs> and uh we're, we're... <laughs> so i'm like I'm i so know exactly you. what you're talking about there <laughs> right that's the whole second season of The Wire. They look away from the war on drugs. Law enforcement isn't paying that much attention. They're certainly not funding it. But anyway, we're in 1999 where the war on drugs gets all the attention and it's the favorite child and it gets all the money. And so the U.S. government is handing out cash hand over fist to the states to fight ye old war on drugs. So $500 million got sent to the state of Texas to fund a task force um, a portion of which was sent to the Panhandle Regional Narcotics Trafficking Task Force, which is not a good name. That acronym doesn't spell anything. <laughs> the Pernt... They did not Pernt workshop that. They didn't. There was no no creative voices in the room. So the Panhandle Regional, Regional Narcotics Trafficking Task Force gets a chunk of this money. Now, when you are state law enforcement and you are suddenly flush with federal money, you do have an obligation to then use that money for its intended purpose, for to fight the war on drugs. You can't just play with it. You have to use it for what it's intended for. So 
Sheriff Larry Stewart and D.A. Terry McEachern were sitting on a big pile of federal money and they look out over the city of Tulia. And do you know what they see? What do they see? Trouble. <laughs> right here in Little Tulia. With a capital T and that rhymes with C and that stands for cocaine. <laughs> I, nice bridge. <laughs> like, <laughs> bridge. Bridge right over that. I would, I would like for the record to show that that is the 37th musical theater reference I have made over the course of recording this show with you that you did not catch. I will get none of okay. them. If it is, I mean, <laughs> I've already told you which one I know. Once more with feeling, Buffy season six. <laughs> and even even for a theater kid, that was obscure. That was Music Man. Oh, like, okay. not not a lot of us know Music Man. Anyway, anyway, <laughs> they see a giant cocaine problem in Tulia, and they're not wrong. Like it, it is, I the highway I twenty seven runs right through town. It is a river for to deposit drugs anywhere along its entire you know coast to coast length. So sure. So Sheriff Larry Stewart and D.A. Terry McEachern. Whoop, nope. Uh, let me get back in my notes. <laughs> so, the problem that the sheriff was facing with this big cocaine issue uh, is that he couldn't investigate himself. It is a small town. There's 5,000 people in this town. Everybody literally knows everybody, including all of the cops. Okay. Like, you know who's a cop and who's not. So they needed to hire outside help. Enter Thomas R. Coleman. He is the son of a Texas Ranger. He had a fondness for black snakeskin boots and matching cowboy hats, which, okay, frankly, I watched some videos and the hats are a little too small for him. He needs to see a professional about getting that sized correctly because he looks a little derpy. But anyway, <laughs> Tom uh, had completed an 80-hour training course with the DEA. He had served in various police departments across the state. and He was sort of a an itinerant cop. He was a traveling investigator. He would just sort of bounce around to whichever jurisdiction needed his services. And so Sheriff Stewart hired him to work undercover and find all the cocaine dealers in Tulia. Okay. So Tom got to work. He created his cover ID. He would be TJ Dawson. He was a sort of menacing biker type with a mullet and a pickup truck and a deep thirst for hardcore drugs. So he rolls up into town, but he's new. So for the first few weeks, could you imagine he had much luck trying to score drugs with the small town drug scene? He's this white guy, this aggressively white guy with his mullet and his comfort with dropping the N-bomb in conversation. This hey, guy. kids, where's the drugs at? <laughs> Hello, fellow kids. I, too, am a kid. No. Hello, drug person. I am also, I imagine he was better at that. I would be a terrible undercover officer. There are skills. I don't have them. So for weeks, he has zero luck making any drug connections. He is burning through cash just because they're paying him to live. And he's nobody's going to talk to him because he's new in town, right? He's the new guy. He tried getting a job at a gas station. He tried to arrange getting fired from that job at the gas station under the pretense that he was associating with drug dealers to give him some kind of street cred in Tulia. It still didn't work. So he finally ended up where everybody who's got no hope left ends up working at the sale yard. He got a job bailing hay, and that's where he struck pay dirt. So the way the sale yard works is, from what I could tell, they paid cash for a weekend's worth of work. You worked Saturday through Monday, uh, just doing hard labor. Um, 
and it was anybody who would show up. It's not like there were, there was like a set list of employees. You showed up, you did the work, you got handed cash at the end of it. And it was um, really kind of the ideal employment situation for somebody who intended to smoke that cash for the rest of the week okay. and then be out of money at the next weekend, come back, shovel shit and bale hay for the weekend. Now you have cash, you go buy drugs, you mm -hmm. smoke it. It's it's a it's a right yeah. above rock bottom kind of a cycle. Yeah, that's a pretty situation. Harsh existence. Yeah, it is not easy work. It is not. But if you've got an addiction to feed, then so he that was actually really smart for him to go to there for to find a drug connection. And he befriended uh, a 65 year old black man by the name of Elijah Kelly, helping him uh, bail up hay. Um, carrying his load for him a little bit. He mowed his lawn for him. He bought him beer after work. He made friends with this guy. And Mr. Kelly knew some people who knew some people who knew some people who could score the cocaine that his new friend TJ was looking for. And he was the one who vouched for TJ Dawson and got him in with the local drug scene. So there you go. At that point, Tom, a.k.a. TJ, started buying up cocaine all over Tulia. He would intentionally overpay for his cocaine to ingratiate himself to the dealers to make more dealers want to come and make a customer of him because wow. obviously this this stupid white boy is, like, <laughs> is willing to pay who doesn't know the going rate for cocaine is is doing this and uh he look this was not safe work that he was doing anytime that you're you're infiltrating a drug uh community um there's a certain level of suspicion that you have to deal with uh, he was working alone. There were no other cops around. So he's by himself out there. He does not wear a wire for any of these transactions because of the risk that he might be frisked, that they might find the wire, that his cover would be blown, and then they would kill him and drag him out into one of the surprise canyons out in the plains, maybe. I'm not, I'm, I'm vamping at this point. I don't know. But <laughs> he deemed it too risky. So he did not wear a wire for any of these transactions. And he couldn't risk taking notes, like on a pad of paper or something, because then what if somebody found that? And they saw that he was writing down, like, times and names and amounts of cocaine and stuff that would be awfully incriminating for him in that situation. So he was very discreet. He would um, hike up his pant leg and write his notes on his leg. And then, you know, you scoot your pant leg back down. Nobody can see that you're taking notes about all of your clandestine Clandestine, 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 clandestine. Tulia, tu, Tulia, clandestine, clandestine. Um, anyway, that you're taking notes about all of these drug deals. So operating in this manner over the next 18 months, Tom Coleman, a.k.a. T.J. Dawson, undercover narcotics officer extraordinaire, made over 100 drug buys in Tulia. And he reported back to Sheriff Stewart and D.A. McEachern about each and every one. And so the whole investigation came to a head on a hot summer morning on July 23rd, 1999. At the crack of dawn, a tsunami wave of Texas police washed over the city of Tulia and scooped up everyone implicated by Tom Coleman. Not one, not two, not five, not ten. Forty-six people were rousted out of bed, handcuffed, and perp-walked into the jailhouse to be booked on charges of dealing cocaine. Wow. 46. The media was alerted ahead of time. So they got to, they were posted up at the jailhouse. So they got to film the seemingly endless parade 
of half-dressed drug dealers being brought in by the police. And if the overwhelming majority of the people arrested that day, like 39 of the 46, happened to be black, well, okay, that was a little weird, but still, well, 46. Tulia's only got 5,000 people. Who knew there were so many drug dealers in Tulia just hiding in plain sight with their cocaines? I mean, these arrests scooped up such notable nefarious characters as Freddie Brookins Jr., the 26-year-old former high school star athlete with no prior run-ins in the law, but that just means he's wily, or Tanya White and three of her siblings, yeah. one of whom was a mother of two little girls. I mean, that's a whole family drug dealer situation, yeah? Or, ooh, the real, the, the feather in the cap of this whole, this whole operation was Joe Moore the, quote, drug kingpin of Tulia, who cleverly disguised himself as a 60-year-old hog farmer still living in the one-room house where he was born. But, you know, that was just the arrests. The real drama was when the trial started. Mm. When the first few folks tried to plead uh, not guilty, <laughs> they got themselves a trial before a jury of their Tulia peers, and they got the whole damn book thrown at them. We're talking 40 years, 60 years, 90 years in jail. And um, after that, all of the other defendants kind of got the message. And uh, they started to plead guilty, taking deals for lower sentences that wouldn't be the whole rest of their lives. And Sheriff Larry Stewart and D.A. Tara McEachern, well, they cleaned house in Tulia. Done. High fives, gentlemen. Job well done. As for Tom Coleman, like any good cowboy, he rode off into the sunset, content with a job well done, though he did humbly accept the Outstanding Lawman of the Year Award for his work presented to him by none other than Texas State Attorney General at the time, John Cornyn. And who is he? Oh, he is currently one of our sitting U.S. Senators who is up for re-election this year. It was a banner moment for Tom Coleman's career, and it would have been a stunning, tide-turning victory in the war on drugs if, if, if any of Tom Coleman's testimony and evidence upon which all 46 arrests and 41 convictions and over 700 total years worth of sentencing were made, if any of it was true, but it wasn't. That man lied about damn near everything. You know, all I know is when we get a review, I'm like, oh my gosh, there are real live listeners out there. They're so sweet. I know. So um, okay. So um, this is the interlude in the middle of the show where we read, uh, we reaffirm our faith in humanity uh, by reading aloud one of the glorious reviews that we are left on uh, Apple Podcasts. You darling, darling, darlingtons, because we love you guys and we love to hear from you. Um, I think you were telling me, Steph, just earlier this week that sometimes doing this podcast seems like throwing our voices into the void and hoping that they will bounce back out of space to us in the future that's right we're just talking to outer space in the future 
Somebody the, the aliens are going to come back. You know, in in you know, a million years from now, the aliens will catch the signal and they will come back and say, uh, "Outlaws and scorned women, huh?" It, but in alien speak, I can't imagine what that would sound like. Because you can't stop the signal, Mal. You can't stop the signal, Mal. Um, so anyway, uh, we love your reviews. We do, every single one of them. We read them. We screenshot them and text them to each other, whichever <laughs> one of us finds them first. Absolutely. Would you, Stephanie, like to read the last one that you sent me? <sighs> I, I sure will. We we got a um, a wonderful, lovely, um, highly complimentary uh, bit of feedback from LDBD06. Mm-hmm. Top tier podcast. Hey-o. <laughs> <laughs> um, while being a great show for the hilarious duo, this show is great because it allows people to explore the darker, less fanciful parts of our history in a way that speaks with compassion and true sorrow for these horrific events. Oh, come I feel on. like LBD 06 gets us like on a spiritual level. And I just, oh, thank you so much for those wonderful kind words. You got the mission, you understand it. And I feel like we should be friends in as much as anybody can be friends in these socially distanced days. Virtual contactless hug. Oh, so the the biggest drug bust in West Texas history to date at that time mm-hmm. was a pure fabrication, which, yeah. which was all based on what? Well, I, I was going to ask you... Um, because you are, uh, you're a professional, you're a lawyer, you went to school a lot longer than I did, you're real smart. Oh. Would you, in your professional capacity as an educated woman, perceive that there was perhaps an inkling of racial bias oh. in these arrests? That's the question. I mean, oh, so <laughs> I, 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 will, I will just <sighs> say it is quite clear that um this this whole whole story was was fraught with problems and this yeah. was so unjust on so many levels and um i by the numbers you're like wow the the yeah. arrests it was you know of those people it was um even called a roundup where yeah. it you was know, it was a west texas roundup the people that were um assumed or or shown to have a bad reputation in the black community Mm -hmm. were just happened to be those that Tom Coleman accused Mm -hmm. of being drug dealers in this sleepy town. And they were in such a very undignified way, you know, rousted from their, their homes that the crack of dawn weren't allowed to get dressed. And just, in their boxers, in their pajamas, they were they were told one man uh, who was just in his boxers at the time that he was arrested. Uh, he was like, "Well, let me get some clothes on." And they said, "Where you're going, you're not going to need clothes." Oh, uh, yeah. What? And what? It, <sighs> no dignity allowed. Yes, one of the um, articles said it was the the number of arrests made amounted to thirteen percent of the town's black population. Yeah, like that's yeah. stunning. And like um, there was only about, from what I read, only about 350 black citizens, all ages, in the city of Tulia. So if you assume that the 39 people 
39 black people that were supposedly drug dealers, they were cocaine dealers in that town, were dealing only to the black population. Uh, and there was no, like, huge drug wars or turf battles or anything going on. No dealers competing with each other for for customers or for clout or for, you know, again, the wire. <laughs> right, right. There was no, like, west side, east side of Tulia going on. Um, so then they're, they're sharing equally, right? Yeah. So then... About 350, you'd, you'd subtract the 39, that's the drug dealers, unless they're dealing to each other. That's math I can't get into. So these these dealers are averaging like eight or nine customers each. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's that's these cocaine dealers. So, and I, I feel like the- Drug the, kingpins. Oh, yeah, the racial dimension, um, it, it was discussed in a couple um, documentaries. Like if you- um, were familiar with that community, then you would mm. know that there was a lot of like, just the the town was segregated in terms of um, the just the way the um, everybody operated and the mm-hmm. white people that were um, arrested and accused by Tom Coleman um, by coincidence or not happened to be white people that had had relationships or were involved mm. in relationships with with the town's black population like there there was this discussion in the documentary yeah that um one of the one of the white um defendants that got one of the larger um sentences happened to have a mixed race child with yes and so it was there was conjecture that um this was you know a result of the fact that there were um, white people that were associating with the the members mm. of the black community and that that led to or, um, you know, caused them to receive a harsher um, sentence mm. than they otherwise would have. And so I, uh, I don't, you know, you don't want to think that that's the case, but then you look at the way this whole thing unfolded and it is really, um, you know, the story, the, the facts of the story and what happens to these defendants, if, if, it, if it just stands on its own, you're like, if it looks like that, then. Like, this is a this is a walks like a duck, quacks like a duck situation. <sighs> Tom, Tom Coleman, to this day, will tell you that he is not a racist right. and that none of his arrests were in any way racially motivated. And that, in fact, he went on to other undercover operations after this where he arrested white people so obviously he's not a racist oh but also in the same interview where he said those things he's being interviewed on 60 minutes by ed bradley jr who is a a storied journalist and happens to also be black and just casually and with no difficulty whatsoever dropping the n-bomb in conversation with with this black man Coleman told me he used the N-word to fit in with blacks during his investigation and admits he also used it among his white friends. The word mm-hmm. Yes, sir, I've used that word. I've used it a lot. Yeah, what's up? Is that a greeting you'd use with me? Oh, no, sir, not you. But it's okay to use it around other people? Yes, sir. You consider yourself to be a racist? No, sir. Do you see how some people might hear what you say and think that you are a racist and that you simply 
railroaded dozens of people because of their race? That's been said, yes, sir. But that wasn't the case. Uh, and it showed... Oh, oh. I mean, there was one of the articles I read. So um, I watched the the 60 Minutes interview and a documentary, and I was, like, going through trying to pull the, the legal histories of what had happened. And there was even... An article that said at one point Tom Coleman bragged about having some sort of membership card affiliating him with the Ku Klux Klan. Mm-hmm. Are you G dang kidding yeah. me? Like, yeah, just stop. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, I I encountered that piece of information as well. And and later when um, that kind of affiliation was being actively frowned upon, uh, he and his fiance were quick to point out. Uh, that no, 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 that wasn't actually his membership card. That was actually from a time that he was undercover working against the uh, KKK. Okay. I... But that, that investigation is about as well documented as his investigation in Tulia. Right. So let's, um, uh... do you have, do you, what, what would you like to talk about? Oh, yeah. Well, I was just going to say a cleaner answer to your question about like, there's just by the, the, I mean, looking at, the the town in which these arrests arose and the mm-hmm. um just the motivations and the beliefs held by the town people and um, that you can't deny that there's a racial dimension and mm-hmm. their um the racial targeting that seemed to occur because of um you know the there was speculation about there was a list and of course it you mm-hmm. know identified black community members as being potential drug dealers and then you have this mm-hmm. undercover agent who just happens to, you know, round up those same people. Yeah, I mean, that was a list. Didn't the sheriff provide him with that right, list? Right, yeah. Like the law enforcement yeah. were like, these are mm-hmm. our suspected people. And, right. and you know. And like, on the one hand, that makes sense for law enforcement to be like, hey, you, new guy in town, here's a starting place. Here are the movers and shakers that we've identified. Mm-hmm. But the way it played out, it it seemed very much like a target list. That's right. Not not a let me help your investigation, but a take these people. And it's just... Get what you can against these guys. Yes. I think at the outset, we should mention that the whole drug war created this incentive to, um, yeah. to show success of your, you know, anti-drug operations through yielding arrests. You had to, right. um, you know, show that the money you were taking from the federal government... Mm-hmm was having a positive and, you know, verifiable effect, you know, Mm -hmm. to show we're winning the war on drugs. And that would also ensure that you received the same or more money the next year. And so I heard it referred to as convictions for cash. Ah, I mean, and that makes sense. Um, That's that's a pretty um, catchy way of, Mm -hmm. of thinking about it. And just I find it troubling that you're incentivizing Mm -hmm. finding wrongdoers in crime where it may in a case like this where it may not even exist like uh you you brought up that the kingpin had a one-room shack i just want to know what was the incentive for the drug dealers to Mm -hmm. you know um to to continue on when when this was not lucrative (laughs) it clearly wasn't profiting them like joe moore Authorities described him as the drug kingpin of Tulia. I didn't even know nothing about a kingpin. I don't, I don't even know how a kingpin live or nothing. I don't know nothing about that. But uh, I know they live 
30 times better than this. <laughs> no, 100 times better than this. <laughs> yes. You think I've got drug money? Okay. And just the, the stunning number. Like, I feel like this just didn't pass the smell test from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Like, right. from the get-go. Like, it was a wildly disproportionate number of arrests from prior mm-hmm. years of any even small-time right. misdemeanor drug cases. Um, there there wasn't a huge swell in property crime, which, mm-hmm. um, you know, I've read has something, you know, will be an indicator of a growing yeah. drug problem because people... It's a, it's a side effect. Right. You've, you've got addicts who need to fund an addiction. They're, they may be turning to some less than legal methods to do so. Right. And so there weren't like telltales that there was just this rampant, crazy drug problem. So it felt right. to me like we were trying to apply this really stiff cure mm-hmm. where there wasn't an ill. So, right. um, and then that's always going to turn up bad because you're like, go mm-hmm. find a snipe. And somebody's like, I'm going to, I'm going to find something, even if mm-hmm. there's no such thing. And Tom Coleman came back with, with 46 of, you know, the folks that had already been previously identified. You know, I don't, I don't know if the list was a match, but it seems like. I don't know. I, oh. It was, well, and to, to be clear, it's not that nobody in Tulia was using drugs. Right. A, a lot of the people that were arrested were drug users and could score you some drugs. But here's the thing. They smoked crack. But they got charged for dealing in powder. Okay. So I guess the big thing we want to talk about in in conjunction with this mm-hmm. massive um, sweep of arrests. And I think the, the mm-hmm. newspapers said that the streets were cleared of garbage. I mean, how? Uh, yeah. How because co- freaking... the Tulia Herald kept it classy. Yeah. How horrible. Mm-hmm. But... Um, so obviously, if you have this raging drug problem and we have mm-hmm. um, an epidemic of drug dealers in town and they are surprised at five in the morning when you arrest right. them, surely uh-huh. there will be evidence of all of right. this criminal there, wrongdoing. There would, be, there would be inventory. There's going to be the picture of the police and there's going to be a table full of Covered paraphernalia. In of drugs, mm-hmm. of money, guns. and guns piled up. And mm-hmm. this is going to be a successful day of showing yes. that we have prevented all of this crime. Mm-hmm. Right. And so did we get that picture with this with this enormous drug bust? And the stunning reality was no. There was <laughs> nothing. There, there was no evidence. That, so there all was of, no evidence. All of these people were picked up. For, you know, um, crimes of delivering cocaine on the word of Tom Coleman, who jotted it down on his leg. On his leg. With no wire. 46. no. 46 people were picked up and there were no drugs. There was no. A hundred transactions. He reported a hundred. A hundred drug buys. Right. Literally no drugs. No drugs. No paraphernalia. No guns. No 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 rolls of money. No. Right. So and that, now here's a, yeah, go ahead. Oh, yeah. No, so that that is your, like, first big flag that, like, hmm. Yeah. Like, what's going on? Yeah. And the next one for me was the fact that they were all charged for powder. Okay. But it, let's, talk, let's talk about the difference between powder cocaine and crack cocaine. Okay. I, I got to, to worry the NSA agent who monitors my Google. 
I did uh, when too. I did a little research <laughs> on this. So pharmacologically speaking, mm-hmm. when it comes to cocaine, there is no difference chemically, pharmacologically speaking, between crack cocaine and powder cocaine. It's just a stimulant derived from the leaves of the coca plant. Okay. Well done. Crack cocaine is in rock form. It comes in these little crystal rocks. Mm -hmm. And that is smoked. And the high hits fast. It doesn't last very long. It's cheap. Mm -hmm. Powder cocaine is more processed. It's more expensive. It is snorted or injected. The high takes longer to hit, but it lasts a lot longer. Okay. There is a perception, and I remember this so clearly. I remember this because of Whitney Houston. Oh. Do you remember the interview? I remember what she said. She objected. She objected vehemently. She was offended that anybody would say that she smoked crack cocaine. Because? Because crack is cheap. Oh, I thought it was because crack is whack. Crack is whack. Crack is cheap. It yeah. is cheap. Okay. She said crack is wet, so, crack is cheap. I will find the soundbite of Whitney Houston. Okay, so... Uh, Put it right here. First of all, let's get one thing straight. Crack is cheap. I make too much money to ever smoke crack. Let's get that straight, okay? We don't do crack. We don't do that. Crack is whack. And you're right. There, There's a perception uh, that... Yes, there is a perception that, um, you know, if you are a crackhead, you mm-hmm. are of a different category of drug user than a coke It's head. a different, yeah, it's a different tax bracket. Like, crack is is blue collar, cocaine is white collar. Okay. Like, that is the perception, that's the, that's the divvy there. And so, of the people... Of the folks who were arrested, who were users, mm-hmm. all they ever used or transported or anything was crack because that's what they could afford. Right. They never dealt in powder because they couldn't afford it. And they couldn't get their hands on it. Right. In fact, there was one, there was one guy. Ooh, I can't remember his name. Mm. God. Oh, it's going to drive me crazy. There was one gentleman uh, who had, who was, he he had been addicted to crack at the time. Mm-hmm. By the time uh, his trial and everything was coming around, uh, he had he had quit and he had gotten into rehab and tried to clean up his life. Mm-hmm. And then this all came back to haunt him. But he had been smoking crack. Right. And he had purchased and delivered crack to T.J. Dawson. So he had done that. But then he gets to the courtroom and he hears that he's being charged for delivering powder cocaine. Right. And he that. stunned he stunned that whole courtroom, including his lawyer, by telling the courtroom and the jury that no, I delivered crack. I never delivered powder. That's right. I don't That's mess right. with powder. Like the entire charge is incorrect. Right, that was Donnie Smith. Thank you. Thank you, Donnie Smith. Ha <laughs> And um yeah. So yeah, that's but none of these none of these folks who were arrested were accused of dealing crack, mm-hmm. only powder. That's right. Now, is there a reason, legally speaking, why you would rather charge somebody for powder than for crack? So I would I would say in this case there was kind of an evidentiary um, you know, aspect to it, like, hey, none of these people would have been dealing in powder, and that is what, mm-hmm. you know, that was the the basis of the arrests, according to Tom Coleman. If you are um, un- arrested or um, under federal law, there is a very big difference. There is a substantial sentencing difference um, between possession of crack, which carries a much greater mm-hmm. sentence than cocaine. 
in Texas, it's mm-hmm. it's based on weight, and there isn't okay. a distinction for you know legal purposes, except um, you know to the extent you're getting into different weights, because mm-hmm. um, in Texas it is the amount because of the group of of drugs it's in that uh, okay is associated with your your punishment. Like less mm-hmm. than a gram is a second degree felony. And now remember mm-hmm. all of all of his alleged buys um, were one to 200 grams, which were enough to bring it to 200 grams, 200 grams. And that is enough to bring it to a first degree felony. And that increases the punishment from five to, um, you know, to between five to 99 years up to a $10,000 fine. And then Mm -hmm. in these cases, because um, Texas also has um, an enhancement, if, you are um, delivering this or possessing in a drug-free zone. And so if okay. you have a cocaine offense that applies and you are near within some number of feet of a public school or a park, then that would ooh, enhance ooh, yeah. your sentencing. And so that's what so, happened in some of these cases where mm-hmm. it was just enough to be a first-degree felony by weight, mm-hmm. but then it was further enhanced oh. because it was alleged to have occurred in a drug free zone. Right. Now, that was something that I read as well, that these buys allegedly took place with, within a thousand feet of a school or a park. So mm-hmm. uh, keeping in mind the size of Tulia, uh, I, I, I did some research on that. Mm-hmm. Tulia, Texas, the city of Tulia, is three and a half square miles. Right. So it's tiny. It is a postage stamp. It's a tiny town. In the city of Tulia, there are exactly three schools. Oh, There's wow. an elementary school, a middle school, and a high school. Okay. Uh, that's it. Okay. There are two daycares, which I was stretching. Maybe they would count a daycare center as a school. Let me see. Uh, there are five parks. So if you spread these out, three schools, two daycares, five parks, over three and a half square miles... It's not hard to be within a thousand feet of any one of these locations, especially if you're being directed to meet the undercover officer who wants to buy the the cocaine from you in a specific spot. He could just stand within a thousand feet of any of these locations. And now you're at a first degree enhanced felony. That especially if he's lying about it. Yeah, that is a really interesting point. So I, you know, I just thought that was um, the yeah. I think that's just a crazy point that um, everybody seemed to, all of his buys seem to be just enough. Mm-hmm. Just, they, just, just enough. Just the right amount. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that would, and then the enhancement would would result in people spending. Mm-hmm. Now, um, Joe Moore was the first one to go to trial. He is the alleged okay. drug kingpin. The drug kingpin. 60-year-old hog farm. That's right. And he... Uh, refused a plea deal because he was like i'm innocent you Mm -hmm. can't make me take a plea because that's outrageous i did not do this um Mm. and it seems like the um the intent was to prosecute him as hard as possible and Mm -hmm. he received 90 years a 90 year sentence at the age of 60 at the age of 60 and it's because he had had prior offenses so then this meant that his sentence would be enhanced because mm-hmm. he had already had prior felony offenses. And so 
that is just, it's utterly tragic because mm-hmm. he wouldn't have, but for the situation that happened. Um, right. Yeah. Oh, so, so I don't know. Have we, we haven't talked about, like, we just went right in. So oh, all okay. of these well. arrests and the convictions mm-hmm. were mm-hmm. supported because there was no evidence on the right. uncorroborated testimony. I was about to say, what evidence did we have? All we had was Tom Coleman's word. That's right. There was no other sworn officer. He had no partner. He had no backup. He had no wire recording. He didn't even have notes because he wrote it all on his leg. Let's remember. That's right. And I mean, all of this was just completely outside of what would be considered the normal operation for an undercover drug operation. Absolutely. Well, and just as a very, very basic matter... When somebody is going to be um, deprived of their liberty, you know, they are Mm -hmm. tried. It is the state's burden to prove the case against that defendant Mm -hmm. beyond a reasonable doubt. Right. And so then you're saying, well, then the evidence that showed Mm -hmm. the defendant's guilt was the uncorroborated testimony of one individual. I mean, I I find that incredible. Um, Apparently, the the prosecutor would lean into the fact of this undercover officer. And Mm -hmm. even after he won, you know, when he won law enforcement officer of the year or whatever it was, Mm -hmm. um, he leaned into that. He's just been named Mm -hmm. outstanding officer. So Mm -hmm. this um, Tom Coleman wasn't just... um, sitting in the witness stand with the prestige of being an officer of the law, which you associate mm-hmm. with being, you know, upstanding and credible, but he, he was being mm-hmm. elevated and honest. And honest. Mm-hmm. It was being elevated. So then you have, you know, the defendants mm-hmm. are being disbelieved by juries on the, on like mostly white juries, by yes. the way, very, very few black jurors on these. I think uh, they had so many juries convened. I'm amazed that they had enough citizens in Tulia to convene as many jurors at juries as they needed. And it's so amazing, too. I mean, like, just think about if you're sitting in um, the jury box mm-hmm. and, you know, you, you listen to the, the witness. There's going to the state has one sole witness who explains I was mm-hmm. there. I saw this. It was him. And they're like, OK. Was there was there anything on the defendant when he was arrested? No. Mm-hmm. So did you right. did you make a was there tape? anything found in his house? Did you make a tape yeah. of you talking to him? Do you have any you know? Nope. Are there any records of the calls that y'all made to no. set up this drug? Did you like no. what was the evidence? And so it seems like because there was no corroboration, there should have been God. There should have been some. I don't know. Some hung juries. Some, there some, should there should have been some. I don't some, accept some this. booking some reasonable doubt, but I there mean, wasn't. No, and so there was not. Yes, and the level of of um, punishments that were doled out <gasps> yeah. on this basis. So the other thing is, um, there were as so. As the trials, initially, the first couple trials yielded really big punishments. So then the Mm -hmm. defendants um, started to take plea deals. And some of those plea deals were even for long periods of time. Um, It's important to note that when you're making a plea deal, you enter this contract with the state. 
And a lot mm-hmm. of times, not only do you plead guilty, but you forego your right to appeal. So mm-hmm. just that is something oh. to put in your mind that creates a very difficult situation as it's emerging that this situation is a travesty. So there were, um, while all of the indictments and the arrests were well publicized, mm-hmm. there were some dismissals that occurred early on that were not well yeah, publicized. I was going to ask, because if he has lied about enough information to arrest 46 people, surely some inconsistencies. Absolutely. Some and holes in the story would come out. They definitely did come to light. Um, so one is he, um, Tom Coleman, accused um, one of the accused that was discovered was um, it was an unpublicized indictment. He named a suspect who had moved away from Tulia years before the uh, before what? the arrest and the, the whole investigation had occurred. So I hadn't heard about that. Damning. Yes. Yeah. So there was somebody who was like, yeah, and this guy, you mm-hmm. know, and so they were going to they were going to issue an indictment and, you know, they Jesus. had enough. And then the, the person wasn't even in in Tulia. And so oh, then um, there was another case where um, and I want to figure out which one. Who was it? Um, there was a case in which. A person was able to, um, oh, it was Billy Wafer. He was able oh, to yeah, show Billy. that um, that he was also misindicted, or mm-hmm. yeah, that he was misidentified. Was it? Um, well, he was um, he was a warehouse foreman, mm-hmm. and he was able to show and have it corroborated by his boss, yes. and show with time cards that he was at work at yeah. the time that he was supposedly selling drugs. So, and he, yes, he had a. a Mm-hmm. Airtight alibi. He had, but right. think about what he had to show. He showed yeah. there was a time card. He had a witness. Mm-hmm. And so that one was. Um, he had all this evidence yes. that Tom did not. No, that's right. And then there was um, Tanya White. So oh. she was able to show that she was in Oklahoma. She was depositing a check at her bank. And she was in Oklahoma City. Oklahoma City. Four and a half hours away. Yeah. And she um, four and a half hours away. And get this, because she needed gas money to get home, mm-hmm. she made a withdrawal of eight dollars. And because it was a withdrawal of cash, there had to be mm-hmm. signatures by the bank employee and by her. And she was able to establish that she was nowhere mm-hmm. near where she was accused of um, making an alleged you know, mm-hmm. sale of um, mm-hmm. of cocaine, of powder cocaine, right. felony, you know, um, mm-hmm. felony weight. And so that one was another one. So at this point, now we have um, these cases which are showing that there is a, a problematic lack of credibility to the investigation. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, what also is happening, um, the, the defense attorneys are trying to um, bring into the the trials the checkered history and past of Mr. Coleman. So when you are trying to discredit a witness, there are certain types Mm -hmm. of crimes that you are allowed to raise. And one of Mm -hmm. them would be something that would affect your um, character, would affect your credibility as for being honest. And Mm -hmm. a theft arrest would be one of them. Yeah. And so yeah. um Coleman was arrested during the pendency of the investigation. 
So while he was working this undercover investigation, he got arrested. Yes. For um, basically for what was it for theft from the law enforcement or from the um, the county. He was working mm-hmm. as a law enforcement officer prior to this job with Swisher County. Huh. And it no. was a huh. he was alleged to have um, bought gas for personal use using the county credit card. But to the tune of six thousand seven hundred dollars, which which is essentially thieving, like from a vendor, yeah, and that's a lot of gas, Tom. And um, yes, yeah, so then he had an outstanding warrant during, and so he was arrested by Sheriff Stewart. But then he wasn't the fired. guy who hired the, him to do the undercover the investigation had to go him. arrest him. And um, he and was, didn't pull him oh, off the streets after that. This is just mind blowing. He was um, not fired. He was suspended temporarily, oh. and okay. he was allowed to pay restitution. Now think about okay. somebody else steals six thousand seven hundred dollars from a county. Like yeah. what? What? And so um, yeah, yeah. One of the um, defense attorneys. In one of those cases, because now, you know, there are dozens of cases that mm-hmm. um, are being processed. The uh, They tried to bring this up. They tried to introduce new evidence concerning Tom Coleman. And mm-hmm. Judge Self sealed it. So efforts to introduce this evidence, along mm-hmm. with additional information about Tom Coleman's past, uh-huh. that would be used to impeach him and his credibility as a witness was essentially not admitted. It wasn't allowed what? to be presented to the jury. So why? Ugh. So the the difficult thing is I don't know what grounds were. You know I don't know what do the arguments. Even, do, does a judge even have to say why? So judges make evidentiary determinations, and evidentiary right. determinations are very hard to um, overturn or you know have reviewed on appeal unless mm-hmm. it changes the outcome of the trial. I think it would be a pretty close call here because it's like the only evidence is this and the evidence that was not admitted, you know, so there is at least some argument that this would have been the type of um, issue that could have been appealable. But judges make evidentiary determinations. If the other side objects and the judge hears argument, they get to, Mm -hmm. they call the balls and strikes and they say that's admitted or that's not admitted. So for whatever reason, he didn't allow that in. So then you have, you know, now that stymies the defense's ability mm-hmm. to attack the only evidence, you know, that the only, the, evidence the, you the, have the only is witness, that this very honest man has said these things. And you can't even say, but he here's some evidence that he might not be as honest. Yeah. And so but you can't even present that. What became Ooh. very problematic, however, is yeah. once that arrest was known to the prosecutor. Mm-hmm. He was duty bound to share that information. And uh-huh. he's duty bound to not allow his witness to lie about it on the stand. Okay. So it became clear that there were these, there were these times that um, when Tom Coleman answered the mm-hmm. question on the stand, no, I've never been arrested. This one time I did a thing and I'm just, I've never been in trouble. Wait, he said that? He, there was something to the effect of, he basically, he said, no, he hadn't been arrested. And then he said something about, you know, I got in trouble for some nothing thing when he was younger, but it wasn't an arrest. Oh, okay. 
Well, that type of testimony, once you know of the arrest, the prosecutor would have also mm-hmm. been duty bound to correct the record. Like he would right. need to tell the judge, he would need to, you know, um, ensure that that mm-hmm. misinformation wasn't, you know, remaining part of the record and used to convict people. So there are... So this, um, this information... Oh, go ahead. Yes. Go ahead. I'm not going to interrupt. No, no. I, it's so... It was baffling to me. There was apparently um, a reference because I didn't, obviously, um, I wasn't able to pull, like, transcripts to read what happened at trial. Right. And so it's based on reporting. And there's always this, like, there's this gray zone where, um, you know a reporter may or may not know all of the the legal factum that you want right. to answer questions that, you know, might, you know, um, arise when you're reading it, you know, years later. But apparently there was a reference to strict rules governing the admissibility of evidence about an officer's history. And so I didn't, oh, I didn't go chase okay. that down, but there may have been some particular basis to, mm-hmm. um, you know, to conceal certain information and there may have been, so there may have been some gray area that, that I don't know about that I am unaware of. Um, however, I do know this prosecutor was later, um, disciplined for, because there's, there's no way he didn't know about it. The guy got arrested six months into his 18 month (sighs) undercover sting. So, the the DA totally knows about it. The sheriff knows about it because he arrested him. Yes. So then when you take this man's testimony into trial and you're the DA, you're the prosecutor who's prosecuting all of these cases, you damn well know that man got arrested. So after the fact, and of course, this is just oh. part of the fallout of everything. There were multiple uh-huh. things that um, McEachern did that was just completely wrong. And one of them was he and he was found to have um he failed to provide discovery regarding Mm -hmm. some of the information about tom coleman he knowingly allowed coleman to um lie under oath and he (laughs) deliberately misrepresented coleman's background to make him appear a credible witness so he was found after um, an evidentiary hearing at the bar so that's what happens Uh if a lawyer is put through the process the the state bar will have a hearing Mm -hmm. and they made a finding that he made a false statement of material fact or law to a tribunal. He failed to disclose a fact to the tribunal when disclosure was necessary to avoid assisting a criminal or fraudulent act. He offered <gasps> or used evidence that he knew to be false and he failed to, um, to refrain from prosecuting or threatening to prosecute a charge he knew was not supported by probable cause or make timely disclosure to the defense of all evidence or information known to him that tended to negate the guilt of the accused or mitigate the offense. There was, there was more. Oh my God. That is everything. You lawyered wrong. Well, he lawyered so wrong. So wrong. I mean, this was just such a complete, like that was beyond the pale. And so he was, um, those findings are just devastating. I mean, especially to a prosecutor and so um, not only was he, you know, were these findings made and he was publicly admonished, he was found to have violated the rules of um, the the rules of professional conduct. 
So he was, though, allowed to keep his law license and put on a two-year probation. So that is, uh, that, uh, that was hang on. not so good. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. <laughs> so he lied, cheated, stole years of time away from dozens of people. And at what point, okay, at what point during the whole process of trying and sentencing and convicting all of these people, did this information come out? Was everybody already in jail? Oh, this was well after the fact because that was part of the fallout. So, um, oh my gosh, let's, let's, let's keep. You don't get to do that. You don't get to ruin people's lives like that. Here's the thing. We say black lives matter and the the understood message of that is about police brutality and physically killing people at a disproportionately higher rate based on the color of their skin. Mm-hmm. However, also, Black Lives Matter in that they can't be ruined arbitrarily at a disproportionately higher rate because oh. of the color of their skin. No, I... Years were taken away from people. Well, it's not. Okay. So it's, I would say, it's worse than that. So one of the documentaries. Oh, um, is it? Oh. Yes. So the, the, the arrests of okay. these 46 people resulted in 50 kids missing one or both of their parents. Jesus. That is 50 children in a community whose lives uh-huh. were completely disrupted and upended. Right. And mm-hmm. you can't, some of them were in, uh, in prison for several years before finally, right. before we get to the, you know, the part of this story that's less horrifying. Um, the other prisoned on the basis of multiple lies. Right. From and multiple people who should have been more responsible. And let's oh, also oh, remember the, the damage that is also irreparable. Felony convictions are the types right. of convictions that mean you can't vote. You can't serve on yeah. a jury. You could you be get a job. You could be denied public housing. You could be mm-hmm. denied social benefits. You you're right. You it makes it harder to get a job. All right. of these things, all of those are just crippling and just, mm-hmm. you know, these. That is, that's, that's your, that's lifelong effects. Even beyond, Absolutely. even if they managed to plead down to like a fine, mm-hmm. some, some folks did manage to plead down to just an enormously unpayable fine. Now that's on your record forever. Right. That's, that's the whole rest of your life is jacked up because of these guys. And so that's right there. And that's just so difficult and so then the and the people that took a plea i mean there were some that um were like i i didn't do it i'm not guilty Mm -hmm. so i won't take a plea bargain and they were in prison for years until you know effectively um enough media and Mm -hmm. enough like grassroots yeah the aclu protest and then the work of a couple pro bono lawyers um we Mm -hmm. should definitely um what is it? Shout out to Jeff Blackburn, who mm-hmm. formed the Tulia Defense Project, um, right. worked tirelessly to um, try to undo this mm-hmm. injustice. Uh, yeah, this didn't this didn't go unremarked upon in the state of Texas. Like this is so Texas so, that this happened. And it was, I love my home state so much. But like every now and then. A lot of times she does it wrong. And like, so it's so Texas that this happened. But 
it didn't go unnoticed or unremarked upon or unacted upon. Well, and that's right. Those first several misidentifications, there was one more, and I need to find Mm -hmm. the defendant's name. But um, the description of this um, individual that Tom Coleman gave, Tom Coleman Mm -hmm. um, said this defendant was a tall black man with big fuzzy hair. And the guy was like, hey, I'm 5'7", and I haven't had any hair on my head for years. Mm -hmm. So that was another one. That was quietly dismissed. Okay. Yeah. That was Yule Bryan. I think Ramona Strickland. Mm -hmm. I don't know if she got dismissed. Uh, She was described in uh, Tom Coleman's words as having been six months pregnant. Uh, But she said that she hadn't been pregnant since her last baby, who was six years old. My goodness. So so she wasn't pregnant at the time. So she was another where the... The only evidence was completely mm-hmm. wrong with regard mm-hmm. to the, the defendant. So, do you know um, what happened with Joe Henderson? Do you have any any notes on him? Joe Henderson. I just I, I saw, saw a very name. a very brief interview with Joe Henderson. He said he got to trial, and it was in the courtroom when he finally got a look at his file, uh, the file of the the whole of uh, allegations against him, that whole thing, and he saw. That it wasn't his name or his picture in there. It was his father. Oh, my God. Cleveland Joe Henderson. No. Who was at that moment and had been for years in jail for attempted murder and aggravated assault. But, oh, wait, no, no, no. I do have it in the notes. Uh, Joe Henderson knew he wasn't going to get Joe Henderson, not Cleveland Joe Henderson. Joe Henderson, the younger, who was arrested, um, knew he wasn't going to get a fair trial. So he pled guilty to avoid getting a max sentence. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So he was one. I do have a list of... Um, it was his dad. Wow. His dad. Who wasn't even in Tulia. He was in prison. Oh. Yeah. So, and so these were... So you, you had said when you plead guilty, sometimes you waive your right to be, to appeal. Yes. So part oh, of... Oh, that's fucked up. Right. And so that's why it is a very... You know, on one hand, you get the expediency. You're, you're saving uh-huh. judicial resources and... You know, you get the certainty. You're not leaving it up to a jury. And so it it must have been a very difficult decision when you're seeing mm-hmm. somebody get 90 years, 40 years for, you know, less than $200 worth of an alleged buy right. after an arrest that yielded zero evidence of mm-hmm. your complicity in this, you know, drug operation. Um, and like, what, what, Tom Coleman... Just the the lack of effort. Like, he didn't even bother trying to obtain, like, I don't know, some blocks of styrofoam and wrap them up and make them look like cocaine. There wasn't even an effort made to fabricate some evidence. There just wasn't any, and he just shrugged and said, take my word for it. He he expected that to work because it did. I mean, the evidence (sighs) he turned in, because remember, he was Mm -hmm. buying drugs with the money he received. Right, right, right. Um, There were, um, and I couldn't find the results of this investigation, but there was an attorney that was pursuing a theory, um, trying to get it tested. And an Amarillo lab said the cocaine, the powder cocaine that mm-hmm. was uh, turned in by Coleman, that was drug buys was unusually weak. And so, so it was, it, it, okay. So he was cutting it with something and or so, it had been cut with something. Can you know, um, the theory that the uh, that that lawyer wanted to pursue was that mm-hmm. 
Tom Coleman, who made $23,000 a year, was somehow Uh able to pay his $6,700 restitution in a very short period of time. And he gave like three different stories for how he was able to borrow the money from his family or somebody lent, gave his mom money or somehow. (laughs) So one of the defendant's lawyers was trying to have all of the the cocaine that had been turned in tested Uh because he thought that would prove or show a common source that it was cut with the same, um, whatever you cut, the mm-hmm. cocaine with. I don't know. <laughs> the same. Uh, and that it came formula, from the I same think. source. Baby formula is pretty expensive, though. I don't know. But that they wanted to show that it was the same source and the same uh, batch, I guess. Okay. In order to say, you know what he did? In order to fabricate all of this evidence, mm-hmm. Tom Coleman took the money that was allotted to him, purchased a bunch of cocaine, and then divvied it out and then turned it in. Oh my god! But um, but he wasn't able to. But I didn't not able to be. Pursued? So I didn't find a resolution to that, and it may have been because once these cases started falling apart, um, four of them were uh, mm-hmm. four of the cases which resulted in convictions were appealed to the Amarillo Court of Appeals, which affirmed mm-hmm. them. But at that point, the ACLU had gotten involved. Right. The community was already starting to, there were um, a few people in the community that were like, hey, this this is a whole lot of racial targeting. This is a miscarriage of justice. Um, they felt like the um, the undercover officer had seduced, was trying to seduce this crime into their community. Mm-hmm. And so it was... Um, becoming more apparent that the um, the hearts and minds of the greater mm-hmm. community was was waning because they were finding, wait, there are a lot of questions. There are a lot of issues. There were these people that mm-hmm. were arrested that it turns out could not have possibly been guilty. The um, They brought the story to the um, Texas Observer. The Texas uh-huh. Observer's story got picked up by the New York Times and mm-hmm. then um, the ACLU got involved and they started assisting with the post-conviction um, habeas mm-hmm. petitions. When you lose on direct appeal, you can start the process to try to say, hey, for reasons of my actual innocence or because of this grave unconstitutional violation, I should not be in jail. Mm-hmm. And um, based on that swell of um, basically attention and the problems and the sheer numbers yes just so many so um there was a um an evidentiary hearing that was so mm-hmm. when you um seek a habeas relief that is a post condition um post conviction part of the process where you can introduce new evidence depending on the circumstances and meeting certain conditions and so um a judge, Ron Chapman, was mm-hmm. selected outside the area. He was a Dallas attorney, right. uh, a Dallas judge. Let's get away from Tulio on this one. And he was supposed to look at the evidence in these four, you know, um, in, yeah, four post-conviction habeas petitions. And that is where he determined that 
Coleman was the most devious, non-responsive law enforcement officer he had ever seen in 25 years, and that he was entirely unbelievable as a witness. Nice. And wow. based on his recommendation to the, the Court of Criminal Appeals, he said that he would overturn the, it was his recommendation to overturn 38 convictions. They were based That's on so many. Yes. And so that, that was the first part of the process to unwind this just hot nightmare oh mess of incarcerated people, people that had taken plea bargains and Ugh. were And just... when, when did that happen? So. When did, when was that? I have a timeline. Because this, there, there are so many different um, legal dispositions happening at once. Yeah, because I just picture like all of this shit with like, like trials are still marching forward and convictions and sentences are still marching forward. All of that machinery is still clicking right along while we're finding out that Coleman was arrested. While we're finding sure. out that this judge has a really negative opinion of this guy. All of that is happening at the same time. So how long did this so, take? So right, right. So let's say. It was in 2002 that the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals issued the series of orders for new hearings in four of those cases, right? Nice. And then it was in mm -hmm. March of 2003 that Judge Chapman started those hearings. And apparently the hearings were stopped shortly because the, the appointed state prosecutors and the defense attorneys were like, okay... So we are all in agreement that Mr. Coleman is a racist, a liar, and a thief. <laughs> so by April, Judge Chapman had issued his report and his recommendation that 38 convictions mm -hmm. should be overturned. And uh -huh. he made that recommendation to the Court of Criminal Appeals, who had okay. who um, had jurisdiction over those cases. And then... Um, I guess shortly after that is when Coleman was indicted by a grand jury on three felony counts of perjury. And Wait. with regard. Okay, we're. Go ahead. Oh, for lying about his past during his hearings in front of Ron Chap Judge Ron Chapman. Hey, so he lied about the shit that he did and he got caught doing and then he got caught lying about that. And so then he got charged for perjury. Yes. Because. Because he's a lying liar who tells lies. Oh, my gosh. And so, um, yes. And if, it, yes. And thank goodness for <sighs> that part of the process, taking an independent mm -hmm. review of what happened mm -hmm. in Swisher County. Right. Because holy moly. And so. Yeah. Um, now, did you get into any of how the attorney general's office investigated this? No, I don't believe that was um, within the scope. Oh, so I do know that. Okay, so Chapman's report, the mm -hmm. state eventually stipulated to that and joined the defense team in recommending that all of those convictions be vacated. And then afterwards, uh -huh. there was apparently a delay in the Court of Criminal Appeals with regard to, because all these habeas petitions, I guess, started um, arriving at the Court of Criminal Appeals, and they were like, well, several of these need to be amended because they lack pertinent information. So while that's okay. going on, the Texas mm -hmm. legislature enacted uh -huh. legislation that allowed Judge Ron Chapman to release those uh -huh. defendants on bail 
while <laughs> while the process you know was ongoing and then people who had been at this point in prison for three years that's right or and, more yes and then oh following he was able to release them on june 16 and then governor rick perry um, of all people granted 35 pardons to those oh my god to those defendants that that were eligible and by january 2005 coleman was convicted of perjury but he was only sentenced to 10 years probation mm-hmm. was was any any step taken to prevent him from getting another job in law enforcement oh my gosh so i was trying to figure out what happened there but in that um in the documentary um the one scenes from the drug war there was a comment at mm-hmm. the end that he had taken a law enforcement job from which he was fired for sexual misconduct. Oh, Jesus. And then he um, was no longer, I think, as a result of, I don't know if it was a result of the um, his conviction or if it was a result of the um, the settlements that occurred, you know, later from the civil suits, but he was no longer to work in law enforcement and he took a job at mm-hmm. a private credit company as a private okay. credit investigator. And my, oh, okay. my the, the influx of my voice was because uh-huh. I jotted something down, but I'm not a thousand D percent sure. Yeah. So what a crazy, crazy um, so intersection of multiple, yeah. ultimately this, terrible miscarriage that happened in the courts had to be corrected by Mm -hmm. the legislature and the executive i mean just just yeah it had to be because it couldn't be corrected by law enforcement itself i guess so john cornett i want to loop this back around to john cornett because he's got my attention (laughs) um he was he's currently one of our two sitting state senators uh, and he was at the time the attorney general. He is the one who handed over the award to uh, the award of outstanding lawman of the year to Tom Coleman. Now, in I'm trying to pull up the information right now because I did not take good notes on this. I'm a terrible person. Uh, in 2002 is when that's when you know all the pressure and everything is happening is in the 2002 2003 range. Mm-hmm. Um, hold on. up some stuff okay so in 2002 there was this all of this pressure and a lot of it was starting to wash onto the ag's office um i'm not 100 percent clear outside of like a tv situation my tv knowledge of how exactly the eternal attorney general's office interacts with law enforcement do you know i mean ish so the attorney general represents the state of Texas and all of its agencies mm-hmm. and, and is the head prosecutor and litigator for the state. And okay. so, however, um, you know, it where they become involved and how they become involved, it that's a pretty nuanced question. Um, so do you mean like obvious... Is there an oversight capacity? So... The attorney general, I don't believe, is responsible for the administration of 
the local police departments. Like the state mm-hmm. is responsible and the attorney general is, um, you know, that the head, the legal head, I guess the, mm-hmm. um, hmm. but I'm trying to think of like, what would be the best analogy? Hold on. I'm Googling. What does the state attorney general do? <laughs> Uh, state attorneys general at USA.gov. Attorneys general are the top legal officers of their state or territory. They advise and represent their legislature and state agencies and act as the, quote, people's lawyer for the citizens. Most are elected, though if you are appointed by the governor, select your state. Yeah, so I was going to say, website. There you go. that's generally true for the state. So, it's the head legal, you know, um, representative and when, like, for example, when cases go through on appeals, the attorney general may be involved and be, you know, uh, be the lead attorney on that case. Mm-hmm. Um, the same thing with other agencies, though. Like, if something happens and it's, you know, the Health and Human Services Commission is involved mm-hmm. in litigation, the attorney general's office would be involved. Because it's and, the people's lawyer. Right. They they okay. uh, represent the state. But as far as like what you mean as oversight, not not I think in the the way you mean. Okay, yeah. so because there was a lot of from from what I was able to find, there was a lot of public outcry for the attorney general's office to do something to investigate something because okay. he had been so publicly in favor of Tom Coleman and in favor uh, okay. of this enormous drug bust that went down in Tulia, there was a lot of pressure on his office to do some kind of investigation, maybe a self-investigation, an accounting, an audit of the process, and see what went down and if anything needs to be done. Um, now, that outcry started almost immediately. Okay. Like 99-2000. And from what I can tell, nothing was done until 2002. And it is being bandied about now and it was said then and it's being said oops i'm broken my chair um (laughs) it was being said then and it's being said again now 18 years later that um by his opponents in the uh senate race that he's in right now that john cornyn's office didn't start an investigation until he decided to run for senator in 2002 and so he needed to silence that particular point that could be used against him in the senate race so Ah. this is this is the theory okay this is what is being said i have no factual evidence to back this up other than the timeline of events the investigation was begun in the ag's office and then plateaued stagnated nothing happened after that but then he was out of the AG's office and he was the senator. So, I mean, the, and, okay, the, the, yeah, the AG's office does have an, an a law enforcement division and a, mm-hmm. an investigations division. But mm-hmm. as far as their mandate, like what statutorily mm-hmm. they're supposed to, what they have to do and mm-hmm. what all they're charged with and how those decisions are made, I'm not entirely sure because that's like a, you know, um, that's like a, they're part of an agency, which is under the executive. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And so I'm not sure if like there's a, a trigger, like you have to mm-hmm. do X, Y, and Z every time that arises. Um, right. Yeah. 
It seems based on the timeline of events that the trigger for John Cornyn's attorney general office to investigate and start looking into what exactly went down in Tulia and what maybe the motivations of these arrests might have been. The trigger for that was the fact that John Cornyn was going to be running for Senate. (laughs) That appears to be, I mean, it might be, it might be a correlation without a causation, but it might not be as well. Because up to that point, John Cornyn, John Cornyn's office either was fully in favor of the way things went down in Tulia or silent about the matter. And that silence is a form of complicity or approval. Well, I mean, in my opinion, it's problematic that, you know, um, who knows what 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 happened that Mm -hmm. made, you know, the the now senator award this law enforcement officer Mm. with the you know outstanding officer of the year award and what does that mean but the Mm -hmm. like you know from what i understand the the ag's office in texas um as the the legal head as the chief officer you know um they do defend and provide assistance Mm -hmm. to agencies and you know when there's a lawsuit against a county that's that's who is going it'll go up and they would defend Mm -hmm. and so i don't know if there was a separate constitutional or statutory task to -hmm. go get involved but as that came up right if you were um looking at those cases then the Mm -hmm. attorney general might have been like you know what maybe we're not going to try to throw the book or we're not going to try to maintain or continue Mm -hmm. these um but i agree with you there should have there clearly should have been from all levels of the state Mm -hmm. some scrutiny when this is hitting the new york times when you know but i don't know um i don't see how they're not in any way involved but the office was either awarding the man or silent about it until john Cornyn started to run for senate i'm not trying to tell anybody who can hear the sound of my voice how to cast your vote i wouldn't dream of it I believe that the ability to vote in this country is the most sacred part of our patriotism. So go and vote. If you are a Texas citizen that's coming up in November, John Cornyn will be on the ballot. Keep this incident in mind, if you would like, while you go and consider who to vote for for his Senate seat. Just saying. Just throw that out there. Just a gentle reminder. Everybody, please (laughs) go vote. So, um... What was I? There was, there was. I don't know. I've been talking for a long time. I'm so sorry. You're like, <laughs> listen, Cornyn's name is on this shit. <laughs> I, I don't enjoy having him as a senator. I enjoy him more, though, than I enjoy Ted Cruz. So. Hmm. Okay. So. Which is like saying that, never mind. You know what? I'm just going to compare them to rashes. And I'm just not. <laughs> I'm an adult. I am a grown up. And I don't have to go there. <laughs> No, so I, um, I dislike them both. I don't know. I think um, I was I was trying to think of there was there were a couple other things I wanted to like I had notes somewhere and there's just so much here. Right. And I think. Yeah. Is there anything else that you would like to say so, as, we, as we near the two and a half hour mark? <laughs> I know. We're, I, I really think we should like, shh, 
you know, I don't, you, oh, you need to oh, do your, oh. your super magic and. Oh, that, that train has sailed. I'm, <laughs> we're, we're done trying to truncate things during the recording. No, I don't, that ain't going to happen. I can't because I have to. You I, just, you just I, say what you're going to say, baby. I know, but I re-listen, like I listen and then I get all like, oh, that's the sound of my voice. But I have to listen to so that I can like send you text alerts if I misstated something and I get all panicked. Right. I'm like riddled with like, oh my God, we have a duty to fix everything and you're like yeah, yeah, yeah. we'll put a note <laughs> yeah we'll just we'll put it in the notes we'll we'll put a little errata at the beginning of the next episode the thing about about podcasts is um honestly nobody nobody cares what exactly we say <laughs> there's no there's no there's no podcast authority we are subject only to ourselves which uh, is why i'm so glad that you hold yourself as accountable as you do oh no taking that because because i don't so um yes i think uh this was just a story about like how a thousand interventions like all the different interventions were critical in Mm -hmm. just unwinding the severe injustice that occurred and you think about the number of families that were disrupted Mm -hmm. there was the one family where a mother four of her children were were ensnared by this you know bogus trap and um you know it it took people like oh there was a jim gardner who he was a Mm. hog farmer in tulia yes he said that it, what what stirred him initially and just and this is this was a white man yes. who was a pillar of the community and an unapologetic racist yeah and that's right yeah he said his views hadn't changed since the 50s but he was completely appalled by how mm-hmm. just awful the um the roundup and the just in the most undignified way people were marched in front of cameras and that he right. felt like the um, the prosecution was playing it to the media before, you know, uh, before mm-hmm. anything had come out to sway and stir the passions of the community. He made a, mm-hmm. a really funny comment about how his wife was the most beautiful woman he'd ever known. But if somebody dragged her out of bed at five in the morning and didn't let her get oh. done up, <laughs> then that would not show her in the right light either. I mean, like, but I <laughs> no, think... this guy, and I don't, I don't want to tag a white savior onto this situation. No, there were so many people that worked so hard to get this done, but I was really, I was struck by Gary Gardner because like he did things like he went and looked through all of the files. He went over them at all of this handwriting, all of the files of all of these arrest reports uh, with what he described as the hand microscope that he uses to check for boll weevil eggs <laughs> on his crops. I did not get it. was a little, basically a little, a little magnifying device so that he could look through. And that's, he's the one who found on Ramona Strickland's description, there was a little scribbled out part oh. in her physical description. And so he went over that with his little boll weevil microscope. And he's the one who was able to decipher under the scribble that she was described as being approximately six months pregnant. Oh, wow. Okay. When she had not been pregnant in over half a decade. No. So, yeah. But it is like, kind it of... It took that much. And it was kind of... Um, I, I don't know. It's pretty appalling, though, when this is happening. And there should be things that challenge your, um, you know, your, your sense of belief and your sense of yeah. credibility uh, or credulity. Uh, 
when when this type of thing happens in your small mm-hmm. community and you're like, wait, but how? How does that work out? And how does right. how is that possible here? It took like the changing minds of this highly segregated mm-hmm. community, this with very deeply entrenched um, mm. biases, very rigidly held views. And um, mm-hmm. Mr. Gardner, uh, I think for him, what I thought was interesting, and it's just real life. The reason he was able to empathize and have compassion was because he started he, as a hog farmer. He was working with people and he came right. to know them and say, mm-hmm. oh, you know, I I have a, a genuine understanding have- and appreciation for the fact that your situation mm-hmm. is different and driven by all this other bullshit in this community. And he wrote well, to the defendants and said, hey, you mm-hmm. all need to get a change of venue. Because it is right. not going to be, yes. it will not be fair here. Tulia isn't going to give you a fair trial. And that's the thing. That is the thing that struck me the most about this entire ridiculous, massive miscarriage of justice was they thought they were going to get away with it. Yeah. they. It never occurred to them that they would need better evidence, that they would need to fabricate fabricate anything better, that they would need to have something better than uncorroborated word with no wire recordings and notes on a man's leg. It never occurred to them that they would need anything better than that because this is Tulia. And I feel like the, the federal money just tainted everything. Mm. And here's why. Because the prosecutor should have like been able to look at this and take a step back and say, I am not going to prosecute. This isn't going to work. Yeah. I am not going to walk into court and uh, say, but I have no other evidence. Just this guy, no video surveillance, Mm -hmm. no audio surveillance, no pictures from, you know, Mm -hmm. a long lens from somebody hiding in a corner, no second witness. I mean, None of the standard procedures that other folks would. Mm-hmm. And they were, you know, there's this this horrible disparity because so many of the um, of these accused drug dealers didn't have enough money to mm-hmm. pay bond to get out of jail. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. So Yeah. Like, yes, obviously, you're just slinging powder cocaine all over the place, making money hand over fist. That's why you can't even pay your bail. Yeah. Obviously. Oh. And like. So the the specter of the pressure of justifying this federal funding, you're saying that that may have motivated them to proceed with a trial that might not have otherwise happened based on the evidence that they had? Like it was too big. It was too publicized, mm. right? We have 46 arrests and we're getting an award and we're like, this is the biggest bust in West Texas history. Mm. We are, you know, this is an example of a win in the, the drug war column. In the war on drugs. Well, mm-hmm. now everybody seems pretty invested in that outcome. They're pretty committed. Um, right. Which is also why, you know, everybody should vote and they should state their policy preferences, right? Is this yeah. is this how we want to prioritize our, mm-hmm. our law enforcement, our social um, priorities with regard to our communities? Mm-hmm. Like, is this how we want all our money spent? Yeah. And your elected officials should hear from you from time to time, because if they don't, then they're going to proceed uh, assuming that they know what you want. That's right. And you got you got to You got to talk to them. And, you know, my senators hear from me all the time. Sometimes they even respond with a form letter. It's great. Oh, oh, yeah. 
<laughs> so yeah, so, vote early and often. Do we and and send people yeah. your emails and scribbles and I'm saying vote. Every every authority figure involved in this whole debacle was an elected official. Yeah. Your vote counts, your vote matters. And you still, if this if this story has left a bad taste in your mouth, remember this in November. That's right. Well, and I was thinking about when I was thinking about um our legislative priorities. Just you were thinking about when you were thinking about. Oh my goodness! I I know. I might. <laughs> my my Man, my word gotta, brain. My word brain is tired. <laughs> so, I I am often thinking when I am thinking as well. So when I was um no. saying that you have a voice as far as your legislative priorities, I think it is just stunning and something everybody should know that a county judge announced that there would be a necessary tax increase to support the jailing of the 46 defendants that were arrested right that was such an influx because because that's so many new people housed for the state to feed they were going to have to house and prosecute more suspects than they really would have anticipated in this sleepy little town right so yeah there's no way the budget food for thought (laughs) just just saying vote it matters your vote matters and black lives matter not just in the please don't kill people in the street but also please don't ruin their whole lives and traumatize 50 children oh because you want to and a juror there was an interview on no evidence oh no evidence there was a juror Mm -hmm. that was interviewed and she was like well well yeah i mean i guess if it was my child that was arrested Mm -hmm. i would want there to be more evidence than just the testimony of one person might have been nice to think about that during the trial, ma'am. <laughs> Wouldn't it have been? Me. Don't Lord. don't turn that reflecting pool back at me. Don't don't make me stare into the depths of my own reflection. Don't make How me live you? by my How own words. All right. Well, thanks for listening. We do appreciate you. If you got any questions, comments, words to share, be they kind or otherwise, you can reach us at outlawsandscornedwomen at gmail.com or on all of the social medias at OSWPod, y'all. That's at O-S-W-P-O-D-Y-A-L-L. If you've been enjoying the show, please hop on over to Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice and subscribe to us. Maybe drop us a quick rating and a review. If you're really digging us, then we invite y'all over to patreon.com slash OSWpodyall, where supporters of the show get exclusive access to fun stuff like um, outtakes from our recordings, or we've got an ongoing series where we recap episodes of Law & Order SVU, stuff like that. As always, we are neither of us journalists, law enforcement, or elected officials. We just crib off of their work, so we'll be posting links to all of our sources in the show notes. And I think that's it. So y'all have a good one, and Black Lives Matter. Matter.